What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, what's been going on with me? Nothing. I still don't have a tree person coming to my house. I mow the lawn. I clean. I do my work during the day. And nothing much exciting happens. Oh, I recorded an episode of The Book Boys with my good friend Ben. So that was nice. We're baby-stepping our way into trying to understand how to have a podcast together. But I think the last episode was a little bit closer, and uh, it seems fine. I'm not totally against it. So I guess that means it's a great success. And that's pretty much it. I mean, yesterday I did go on a quasi-date with a woman over lunch break, so that was a little weird. Uh, and it was alright. It was fine. Um, we just walked around and talked after getting coffee. Uh, besides that, uh, was talked down to by a co-worker during a conference call. That's fun. Uh, what else? Saw a car crash. That was pretty cool. Pulled it in the parking lot of the gas station and heard a loud crash. And thought, oh my god, that was really loud, which means it must be close to me. I wonder if something happened to my car. I looked out the window, and I'm not exaggerating, I saw a black car about four or five feet off the ground, flying through the air sideways, like on its side, uh, and then landed on the ground. Uh, so I got out of my car and dialed 911, and it was busy. So I kept dialing and dialing as I walked over to the car that was on its side. And uh, there was a man in a green shirt standing there. And I said, "Eh, is the person still in the car? And he said, no, they got out and they jumped into a white truck and sped off. So that was crazy. Uh, Finally got a hold of 911. They said that uh, all the people that had gathered around along the street to watch uh, had called already. So they took down my name. Walked over to the other car to tell the person who's still sitting in it, the one that got hit, uh, help us on its way, just stay still, don't move around or anything in case anything got broken, and wait for the, the you know ambulance to come. And the guy in the green shirt kind of pushed me out of the way and said the same thing, except in a more authoritative voice. So that was emasculating. Uh, so watched as the cops finally showed up and the paramedics or whatever and then I thought okay that's all I can do and uh, drove home I think 
Besides seeing a car fly through the air, like an episode of the Rockford Files, it was weird to see all the people gathered around uh, and taking pictures with their phones. The car that was on its side was on fire, uh, and people were standing really close to it taking pictures, so that seemed dumb. Uh, I even told somebody, just back up. If this car blows up, you're going to get hurt. (laughs) And they just sat there taking pictures. But yeah, it was like something out of a movie with all the people that came walking over just to stare at the damage. Uh, You always hear about gawkers, like, you know, in old books and movies whenever there's an accident. But I haven't really seen it in person because most accidents happen on the highway. But no, these people were all gathered around, talking to each other, staring at each other. Uh, One woman was yelling about how everyone's being stupid, just to herself. Like, don't, why are you standing over there? Everyone's so stupid. And it was just, everyone had an opinion. It was pretty weird. And that's about it. Then I recorded my podcast with Ben. He's going to come to my house in person on Saturday with my kids here, which I'm sure they'll hate. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed just like you. And maybe your kid in the back seat. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Guys, I'm going to change things up a little bit today. Normally, I take a little break midway through what I'm reading and let you know about a brand new book from Penguin Random House. Uh, but this book is so good. I've just got to tell you about it right now. It's Hondo from Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures. Uh, says I can read an excerpt. I should be doing that. I'm not going to today. About Hondo, Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures, as part of the Louis L'Amour Lost Treasures series, this edition contains exclusive bonus materials, exclamation point. He was etched by the desert's howling winds, a big, broad-shouldered man who knew the ways of the Apache and the ways of staying alive. She was a woman, alone, raising a young son on a remote Arizona ranch. And between Hondo Lane and Angie Lowe was the warrior Vittoro, whose people were preparing to rise against the white men. Now the pioneer woman, the gunman, and the Apache warrior are caught in a drama of love, war, and honor. Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures is a perfect project (laughs) created to release some of the author's more unconventional manuscripts from the family archives. In Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures, Volumes 1, Beau L'Amour takes the reader on a guided tour through many of the finished and unfinished short stories, novels, and treatments that his father was... His? His name is Bu. B-E-A-U. Bao, Bu, Bu. All right, doesn't sound like a male name, but all right. Was never able to uh, publish during his lifetime. Lemur's never-before-seen first novel, No Traveler Returns, faithfully 
completed for this program is a voyage into the danger and violence of the high seas. These exciting publications will be followed by Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures, Volume 2. Additionally, many beloved classics will be re-released with an exclusive Lost Treasures postscript featuring previously unpublished material, including outlines, plot notes, and alternate drafts. These postscripts tell the story behind the stories that millions of readers have come to know and cherish. Praise from the Smithsonian Magazine. They say that L'Amour is popular for all the right reasons. His books embody heroic virtues that seem to matter now more than ever. L'Amour falls into that grand tradition of Jack London. Oh, this is perfect. And Robert Louis Stevenson. Well, there we go. Maybe that's the reason why I'm so drawn to this book. That was the Wall Street Journal. The Smithsonian Magazine says that Louis L'Amour made the modern Western a national pastime. So the Smithsonian had less to say. On to the story. Oh my God, I was just looking through uh, my physical copy of the book that I've beaten up, uh, got waterlogged, and have taken a million pictures of for my stupid Instagram account. But uh, I have 25 chapters in this. I forgot about that. We're doing chapter 19 right now, which means I am so much closer to being done with this book. I might have to do double chapters or something to finish this baby off sooner and I can read something I actually enjoy. But let's dive in to turning on the Kindle. Uh, chapter 19, Transformation. You must make yourself over again, Ernest wrote to me. You must cease to be. You must become another woman. And not merely in the clothes you wear, but inside your skin, under your clothes. This guy's got a fetish. I once uh, knew a lady who, before her divorce, her husband would make her go to a bar and, uh, and watch from another table as men hit on her, and then he would come over and she'd be, like, falling all over him. People, people have things. Uh, you must make yourself over again so that... Even I would not know you. Your voice, your gestures, your mannerisms, your carriage, your walk, everything. Yeah, this guy's got a fetish. He wants to pretend to meet her in a bar. This command I obeyed. Every day I practiced for hours and burying forever the old Avis Everhard beneath the skin of another woman, whom I may call my other self. It was only by long practice that such results could be obtained in the Mere detail of voice intonation, I practiced almost perpetually till the voice of my new self became fixed, automatic. It was this automatic assumption of a role that was considered imperative. One must become so adept as to deceive oneself. None of this matters, because if the police come up and they have any reason to think that you're the person, they'll just arrest you. They don't care what your voice sounds like or how you dressed. It was like learning a new language, say, the French. At first, speech in French is self-conscious, a matter of the will. The student thinks in English and then transmutes into French, or reads in French but transmutes into English before he can understand. Then later, becoming firmly grounded, automatic, the student reads, writes, and thinks in French without any recourse to English at all. 
and so with our disguises it was necessary for us to practice until our assumed roles became real. Until to be our original selves would require a watchful and strong exercise of will. Of course, at first, much was mere blundering experiment. We were creating a new art, and we had much to discover. But the work was going on everywhere. Masters in the art were developing, and a fund of tricks and expedients was being accumulated. This fund became a sort of textbook that was passed on, a part of the curriculum, as it were, of the School of Revolution. It was at this time that my father disappeared. Oh, boy. His letters, which had come to be regularly, ceased. He no longer appeared at our Pell Street quarters. Our comrades sought him everywhere. Through our secret service, we ransacked every prison in the land. But he was lost as completely as if the earth had swallowed him up. And to this day, no clue. Again, C-L-E-W. Hmm. I don't know what to think of that. I don't even know why it bothers me. To this end has ever been discovered. I get it that people spell words differently, but I thought this was during a time when... All right, let's move on. Six lonely months I spent in the refuge. Her hole. They were not idle months. Our organization went on apace, and there were mountains of work always waiting to be done. Ernest and his fellow leaders from their prisons decided what should be done, and it remained for us on the outside to do it. There was the organization of the mouth-to-mouth propaganda, the organization with all of its ramifications of our spy system, the establishment of our secret printing presses, and the establishment of our underground railways. Oh, really? Which meant the knitting together of all of our myriads of places of refuge. Oh. I thought, like, physically, like, boring holes in the ground and putting... And the formation of new refuges where links were missing in the chains we ran all over the land. So I say, the work was never done. At the end of six months, my loneliness was broken by the arrival of two comrades. They were young girls, brave souls and passionate lovers of liberty. Laura Peterson, oh, a normal name, who disappeared in 1922, and Kate Pierce, who later married Dubois, and who is still with us with eyes lifted to tomorrow's sun that heralds in the new age. The two girls arrived in a flurry of excitement, danger, and sudden death in the crew of the fishing boat that conveyed them across San Pablo Bay was a spy, a creature of the Iron Heel. He had successfully masqueraded as a revolutionist and penetrated deep into the secrets of our organization. Without a doubt, he was on my trail. For we had long since learned that my disappearance had been cause of deep concern to the secret service of the oligarchy. Luckily, as the outcome proved, he had not divulged his discoveries to anyone. He had evidently delayed reporting, preferring to wait until he had brought things to a successful conclusion by discovering my hiding place and capturing me. His information died with him, under some pretext after the girls had landed at Petaluma Creek and taken to the horses. He managed to get away from the boat, 
partway up Sonoma Mountain, John Carlson let the girls go on, leading his horse while he went back on foot. His suspicions had been aroused. He captured the spy, and as to what had happened, Carlson gave us fair idea. I fixed him, was Carlson's unimaginative way of describing the affair. I fixed him, he repeated, while a somber light burned in his eyes and his huge, toil-distorted hands opened and closed eloquently. He made no noise. I hit him, and tonight I'll go back and bury him deep. During that period, I used to marvel at my own metamorphosis. At times it seemed impossible, either that I had ever lived a placid, peaceful life in a college town, or else that I had become a revolutionist, inured to the scenes of violence and death. One or the other could not be. One was real. The other was a dream. But which was which? Was this present life of a revolutionist hiding in a hole a nightmare? Or was I a revolutionist who had somewhere, somehow, dreamed that in some former existence I had lived in Berkeley and never known a life more violent than teas and dances, debating societies, and lecture rooms? And then I suppose this was a common experience of all of us who had rallied under the red banner of the Brotherhood of Man. I often remembered figures from that other life. And curiously enough, they appeared and disappeared now and again in my new life. There was Bishop Morehouse. In vain we searched for him after our organization had developed. He had been transferred from asylum to asylum. We traced him from the State Hospital for the Insane at Napa to one in Stockton, Stockton and from there to the one in Santa Clara Valley called Agnews, there the trail ceased. There was no record of his death. In some way, he must have escaped. Little did I dream of the awful manner in which I was to see him once again, the fleeting glimpse of him in the whirlwind carnage of the Chicago Commune. Jackson, who had lost his arm in the Sierra Mills and who had been the cause of my own conversation er, conversion into a revolutionist, I never saw again. But we all knew what he did before he died. He never joined the revolutionists. Embittered by his fate, brooding over his wrongs, he became an anarchist. Not a full philosophic anarchist, but a mere animal, mad with hate and lust for revenge. And well, he revenged himself. Evading the guards in the nighttime while all were asleep, he blew the <clears throat> penthern, pen, pen, perthenweight. I can say it. Palace into atoms. No soul escaped, not even the guards. And in prison, while awaiting trial, he suffocated himself under his blankets. Dr. Hammerfield and Dr. Ballingford achieved quite different fates from that of Jackson. Uh, they have been faithful to their salt, and they have been correspondingly rewarded with ecclesiastical palaces wherein they dwell at peace with the world. Both are apologists for the oligarchy. Both have grown very fat. Dr. Hammerfield, as Ernest once said, has succeeded in modifying his metaphysics so as to give God's sanction to the Iron Heel and also to include much worship of beauty and to reduce to an invisible wrath, wraith, 
the gaseous vertebrae described by Haeckel. The difference between Dr. Hammerfield and Dr. Ballingford being that the latter has made the god of the oligarchs a little more gaseous and a little less vertebrae. Peter Donnelly, the scab foreman at the Sierra Mills, whom I encountered while investigating the case of Jackson, was a surprise to all of us. In 1918, I was present at a meeting at the Frisco Reds, oh, of the Frisco Reds, of all of our fighting groups, this one was the most formidable, ferocious, and merciless. It was really not a part of our organization. Its members were fanatics, madmen. We dared not encourage such a spirit. On the other hand, though they did not belong to us, we remained on friendly terms with them. It was a matter of vital importance that brought me there that night. I, alone in the midst of a score of men, was the only person unmasked. After the business that brought me there was transacted, I was led away by one of them. In a dark passage, this guy struck a match, and, holding it close to his face, slipped back his mask. For a moment, I gazed upon the passion-wrought features of Peter Donnelly. Then the match went out. I just wanted you to know it was me, he said in the darkness. Do you remember Dallas, the superintendent? I nodded at Recollection of the vulpine-faced superintendent of the Sierra Mills. Well, I got him first, Donnelly said with pride. T'was after that I joined the Reds. But how come it's that you are here, I queried. Your wife and children? Dead, he answered. That's why, no, he went on hastily. Tis not revenge for them. They died easily in their beds. Yeah, sickness, you see. One time and another, they tied my arms while they lived. And now that they're gone, tis revenge for my blasted manhood I'm after. I was once Peter Donnelly, the scab foreman. But tonight I'm number 27 of the Frisco Reds. Come on now, and I'll get you out of this. More I heard of him afterward. In his own way, he had told the truth. Many said all were dead. But one lived, Timothy, and him his father considered dead because he had taken the service with the Iron Heel in the mercenaries. A member of the Frisco Reds pledged himself to twelve annual executions. The penalty for failure was death. A member who failed to complete his number committed suicide. These executions were not haphazard. These group of madmen met frequently and passed wholesale judgments upon offending members and survivors of the oligarchy. The executions were afterward apportioned by lot. In fact, the business that brought me there that night of my visit was such a trial. One of our own comrades, who for years had successfully maintained himself a clerical position in the local bureau of the Secret Service of the Iron Heel, had fallen under the ban of the Frisco Reds and was being tried. Of course, he was not present, and of course, his judges did not know that he was one of our men. My mission had been to testify to his identity and loyalty. It may be wondered how we came to know of the affair at all. The explanation is simple. <clears throat> One of our secret agents was a member of the Frisco Reds, 
It was necessary for us to keep an eye on friend as well as foe, and this group of madmen was not too unimportant to escape our surveillance, but to return to Peter Donnelly and his son. All went well with Donnelly until, in the following year, he found among the sheaf of executions that fell to him the name of Timothy Donnelly. Then it was that family clannishness, which was his to so extraordinary a degree asserted itself. To save his son, he betrayed his comrades. In this, he was partially blocked, but a dozen of the Frisco Reds were executed, and the group was well-nigh destroyed. In retaliation, the survivors meted out to Donnelly the death he had earned by his treason. Nor did Timothy Donnelly long survive. The Frisco Reds pledged themselves to his execution. Every effort was made by the oligarchy to save him. He was transferred from one part of the country to another. Three of the Reds lost their lives in the vain effort to get him. The group was composed only of men. In the end, they fell back on a woman, one of our comrades, and none other than Anna Royalston. Our inner circle forbade her, but she had ever a will of her own and disdained discipline. Furthermore, she was a genius and lovable, and we could never discipline her anyway. She is in a class by herself and not amenable to the ordinary standards of the revolutionists. Despite her refusal to grant permission to do the deed, she went on with it. Now Anna Royalston was a fascinating woman. All she had to do was to beckon a man to her. She broke the hearts of scores of our younger comrades and scores of others she captured and by their heartstrings led into our organization. Yet she steadfastly refused to marry. She dearly loved children, but she held that a child of her own would claim her from the cause and that it was the cause to which her life was devoted. It was a easy task for Anna Royalston to win Timothy Donnelly. Her conscience did not trouble her, for at that very time occurred the Nashville Massacre, when the mercenaries, Donnelly in command, literally murdered 800 weavers of that city. But she did not kill Donnelly. She turned him over, a prisoner to the Frisco Reds. This happened only last year, and now she has been renamed... The revolutionists everywhere are calling her Red Virgin. Colonel Ingram and Colonel Van Gilbert are two more familiar figures that I was later to encounter. Colonel Ingram rose high in the oligarchy and became minister to Germany. He was cordially destined by the proletariat of both uh, countries. It was in Berlin that I met him, where, as an accredited international spy of the Iron Hill, I was received by him and afforded such assistance. Incidentally, I may state that in my dual role I managed a few important things for the revolution. Colonel Van Gilbert became known as Snarling Van Gilbert. His important part was played in drafting the new code after the Chicago Commune. But before that... As trial judge, he had earned sentence of death by his fiendish malignancy. I was one of those that tried him and passed sentence upon him. Anna Royalston carried out the execution. Still another figure arises out of the old life. Jackson's lawyer. Aw. 
Least of all, I would have expected again to meet this man, Joseph Hurd. It was a strange meeting. Late at night, two years after the Chicago Commune, Ernest and I arrived together at the Benton Harbor Refuge. This was in Michigan, across the lake from Chicago. We arrived just at the conclusion of the trial of a spy. Sentence of death had been passed, and he was being led away. Such was the scene as we came upon it. The next moment, the wretched man had wrenched free from his captors and flung himself at my feet, his arms clutching me about the knees in a vice-like grip as he prayed in frenzy for mercy. As he turned his agonized face up to me, I recognized him as Joseph Heard. Of all the terrible things I witnessed, never have I been so unnerved as by this frantic creature's pleading for life. He was mad for life. It was pitiable. He refused to let go of me, despite the hands of a dozen comrades, and when at last he was dragged, shrieking away, I sank down, fainting upon the floor. It is far easier to see brave men die than to hear a coward beg for his life. Well, there you have it. Finished up chapter 19. We are only five chapters out of this hell. What did we learn today? We learned that Avis has to act like a different woman in how she dresses and how she talks and everything because Ernest is some sort of weird pervy person. Avis recaps on all the people from previous chapters that we've learned about, uh, I guess to sort of give them some sort of purpose to the story. Uh, but unsurprisingly, they all suck. They all sold out to the oligarchy. And uh, most of them are spies for some reason. Uh, even Jackson's old whiny lawyer, Joseph Turd, gets put on trial for spying, I believe, and is dragged out as a coward. So that character has no depth beyond whining a lot and being a coward. Some woman named Anna Royalston is basically a psychopath. Uh, she got involved uh, with the Frisco Reds, which sounds like a sports team, and uh, just starts executing people and apparently loves it. She's the Red Virgin, whatever that's supposed to mean. Uh, and no one likes the Frisco Reds. They're an animalistic anarchist group. Uh, but the socialists buddy up with them. Because Ernest isn't above selling out his principles when he's sitting in prison all bored. So there you have it. Chapter 19, The Transformation. So close to being done. Uh, I'm gonna celebrate. I might read the very last chapter just completely drunk out of my mind as a way of celebrating it. Uh, no, I won't. But anyways, I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you come back again to finish this horrible thing with me.